I invite you to please pray with me. Holy God, though so often our flesh is indeed weak, our spirits are willing. We pray that you would open up our spirits to receive your word so that we may worship you and walk in the footsteps of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I am very much a lucky person, and I consider myself blessed. Again, even though I'm not feeling the best, <laughs> I'll do my best to make it through this sermon. Um, I do, feel, do, do indeed feel blessed. I mean, I'm someone who has uh, a wonderful roof over my head. I've got food on the table, and no worries about that. Uh, I get to wake up every morning and do a job that I love. It can be frustrating sometimes, but I love it. This is a great blessing. I get to work with all of you people. What could be better? I mean, this past year, the Astros won the World Series. The Patriots made it to the Super Bowl. Indeed, my life is blessed. And of course, we live in one of the greatest cities on the planet, and certainly one of the hidden gems of the United States, Houston, Texas. But even though my life, and I'd say the vast majority of our lives are quite blessed, uh, there are always those bumps in the road, those things that get in our way. Uh, and when those happen, again, they could happen on every course of a week. Sometimes, even in the midst of the day, we generally can pick ourselves up and move on. But not always. Sometimes there are things that are a little more serious than that. And indeed, we see such a time this morning in our text from Mark 14. The setting here is right after the Last Supper. Jesus has shared his meal, his Last Supper with his disciples. Uh, within the greater city limits of Jerusalem, uh, but not within the old city, uh, somewhere across the Kidron Valley on, near the Mount of Olives. And after dinner, they go outside on the Mount of Olives and they sing a hymn together, as was traditional uh, for Jews at the time. And then Jesus uh, gives them the proclamation uh, that all of you will abandon me. It's right after they shared a meal together. Uh, shared table fellowship. Jesus is like, all y'all, you're all going to abandon me. And of course, they say that's not true at all. Uh, Peter in particular is like, oh Lord, I would never do that. And Jesus says, not only will you do that, but this very night you'll do it three different times uh, before the cock crows. And then Jesus takes uh, his three closest disciples, uh, Simon Peter, and then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, people who have been with him from the very beginning, and goes into this place called Gethsemane. And the text is very clear here uh, that Jesus uh, begins to be deeply troubled. Some commentators say that 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 translation doesn't get the full strength of the word. Uh, He is shuddering with horror. He begins to shudder with horror, and then it adds another word, and he's very anxious. And then the very next line, Jesus says to the disciples, and I am grieved almost to the point of death. And then after he goes and he prays, he throws himself on the ground and prays. Not surprisingly, this has been known as the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is not a minor thing here. Uh, Jesus is about to face his own death, and he's coming to grips with what that means, and it terrifies him. Uh, Later, biblical writers have felt uncomfortable with uh, how much detail Mark puts into this agony of Jesus, and so Luke softens this quite a bit. Luke actually removes all of these emotions when he describes this scene. Uh, And in the Gospel of John... Uh, as is typical for the Gospel of John, any agony that he says is just for, the, just for the sake of those watching him 
uh, because he actually doesn't feel it. But here in Mark, we get the raw emotions. We get the real thing. Jesus is in the midst of agony. And so even though we might be blessed and live our blessed lives, I think most of us can relate to some of this agony. This is true existential angst. This is these moments where you fall down on your knees and you can do no more. You can, you can go no farther. Uh, and that, those moments can happen when we, try and come, when we, when we come to grips with death. Uh, this past week, I was reading some of uh, Sherwin Newland's book, How We Die, a book that came out about 25 years ago, that uh, says in very clear biological terms what it's like to die. And one of the things that Newland's trying to say is like, listen, it's not pleasant. You have these images of death, you know, you're surrounded by your loved ones, you know, uh, in a bed and everyone's at peace, but that's generally not the way death is. Your body is shutting down. It's generally quite painful and unpleasant, uh, both for you and for those around you, and it's terrifying. And as you're approaching that death, it is logically, uh, it's logical for you to be over, overcome with anxiety, overcome with terror, just as Jesus is here. Not just over what death actually means, not, 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 not just after the sufferings of what death might bring, but also what comes after. Because regardless how much you might want to be grounded in your faith, regardless of how much hope you might want to have, there is uncertainty about that. There is that beyond that is potentially nothingness. And when you actually have to face that, when you actually have to think about it, it's terrifying. I remember my father, when he uh, was younger, he would always talk about, uh, again, my father was in the medical profession. He was involved in various pharmacy-related things. And so uh, he's a good old-fashioned New England cold, cold rationalist. And so he, when he was talking about these things, he's like, listen, one of our problems in society is that we spend too much money on the last six months of life. What we really need to do is do the same thing the Eskimos did, which is just put people on icebergs and let them float away. Uh, and, I mean, he said it a little bit more compassionately than that, so... That doesn't sound very compassionate. Um, but of course, when it became his, when, it, when all of a sudden he had terminal cancer uh, that was incurable uh, and no options forward, and all of a sudden it came time to get on his own iceberg, it turns out he didn't want to get on that iceberg. Because <laughs> it's terrifying. Uh, and it's also, uh, it can be, it can shake you to the core in the same kind of agonizing way when you lose someone who's uh, a spouse, a longtime spouse of yours. That's terrifying too, to be, all of a sudden have to face being alone every day when you've been with someone for the last 40 or 50 years. It's not an easy thing to deal with. Uh, or perhaps if you're facing a severe uh, a job loss um, where you honestly don't know if you're going to be able to provide for your family or, you know, what about those people who, who face job losses, say, in their 50s? where your options of rehiring, especially at any salary remotely close to what you had before, is just not a realistic opportunity. This is, this is terrifying. It shakes you to your core. Again, coming back to my father, uh, you know, I remember he was, you know, again, he was an entrepreneur, as I mentioned last week, and had various ups and downs. And I remember him telling stories of when he was trying to start a business in the early 80s. This is when Paul Volcker had jacked interest rates up to the 20s. Uh, so imagine trying to start a business when you're borrowing at over 20% interest rate. Uh, he would be so overwhelmed by this that he would literally just, he'd just stay up nights playing solitaire just to keep his mind off the crushing reality of what this, might meant for him and his, what this might mean for him and his family. Or if you ever uh, had the misfortune of running afoul of the law, uh, that could be terrifying. I mean, think of, think of just being pulled over when you uh, are, have a speeding ticket, how much that makes your heart stop. Well, imagine if it's something more serious than that. I imagine if we're all honest, we realize that at various points we've uh, done things we shouldn't have done. We've potentially broken the law and things we've done. Well, what if you get caught? You have to face with what this might mean. It's not easy. Or if you're living in the midst of a relationship that's falling apart. 
And you have to deal with that. These moments of existential angst, of true agony, are just that, agonizing. They're difficult for us to deal with. But at the same time, uh, they can give us insights uh, into truth. I think about uh, physics, uh, an analogy to physics. It's not often that I make science analogies, but I'll, I'll try one here. All the scientists will jump all over me, I'm sure, afterwards. Um, but, you know, again, in the 17th century, you have Newton, Isaac Newton and Newtonian physics, where you have this closed world where everything uh, fits into a nice cause and effect. You know, it goes by certain laws and the way things should work. Well, all of a sudden, you get to the early 20th century, uh, and you have someone like Albert Einstein putting forth a theory of relativity and saying, you know what, all those rules that you have under Newton, they work most of the time. But if you get into a place, say, where there's, this, where there's a significant change in gravitational pull, all of a sudden things like time and space get distorted. And if you've been in any of those times of agony or existential angst, you, you, you remember that actually reality seems to be distorted. The, the, the things that you normally consider to be reality aren't reality in that sense. And yet, just like with Einstein, it names a truth, something that's actually true. Theologians in the last 200 years have relied upon these moments for theological insight. Soren Kierkegaard is a Danish uh, philosopher and theologian that lived in the first half of the 19th century. Kierkegaard was deeply frustrated uh, by some philosophers and theologians he saw around him in Denmark, uh, in Copenhagen. Because people were talking about, say, how many angels danced on the head of a pin, or they were talking about, uh, oh, all this great historical criticism of the Bible, and this, that, and the other thing. And for Kierkegaard, he's like, this stuff matters existentially. This stuff matters in your life. This stuff should matter in how you live and get up every day. You can't just talk about it so dispassionately. This isn't, you're, you're, not, you're missing the whole darn point. And so uh, one of his most famous books is a book called Fear and Trembling, which I highly recommend you reading. But it's his uh, meditation on the Akedah passage, the binding of Isaac. And so Kierkegaard's like, you want to know what faith is? Faith is God telling you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go take him to the mountain and then go kill him. And how you respond to that. This is where Kierkegaard is like, you know what faith is? That's what faith actually is. It's not just like going in your blessed life every day. It's where things are in a different place. It creates those stark questions. And for Kierkegaard, these crises, these various crises, create decisive moments where you must decide what you're going to do with your faith. You've got to talk about real things if you're going to talk about faith. And indeed, the most famous and most influential theologian of the century, Karl Barth, Swiss theologian Karl Barth, uh, again, he, in his, in his seminal work, his commentary on the Epistle of the Romans, Karl Barth talked about a crisis that happens. He's like, for Christians, all of a sudden you're confronted by the judgment of God. The word of God comes to you, the word in Christ comes to you, and comes to you and reveals to, reveals to you in a very naked way your sin, your alienation from God, your alienation from others, and forces you to make a decision. Creates this crisis moment. And that that's the essence of finding salvation, according to Karl Barth. And indeed, my favorite theologian, you've heard me talk about him quite often, uh, so I'll talk about him again, uh, Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich wrote uh, probably the most insightful work on these moments of, uh, of agony, which uh, is called The Courage to Be. 
literally what Tillich means by that title is the courage to be, the courage to stand, the courage to find self-affirmation in the midst of times when your very being is being threatened. So again, according to Tillich, there is this force of non-being, this force of nothingness that is out there. There are things that are forces of negation that come into our lives. And the question is, in the face of those threats of non-being, how do we find, how do we find the, that, that, that capacity to stand, to be, to have that courage to actually be a person, to be you? He breaks down these different uh, threats to our being into three different categories. One is uh, the threat to our being that we find when, we're, when we face judgment. We feel guilt. It threatens who we actually are. If you've ever been in a period of extreme existential angst because of guilt you felt, you know how paralyzing it can be. And in the most extreme sense, you can feel utter condemnation. That's one sort of threat of non-being. He, he also labels uh, this possibility of meaninglessness where you're, uh, you're out in the world and you just can't find, any way, you can't find any reason to get up in the morning. Meaninglessness assaults you, and in its most extreme form, it turns into despair. And then, of course, the one that is the core of all the others that strikes us all, uh, it's the threat of fate. It's the threat of contingency. We live in a contingent life. There's nothing we can do about it. As much as society might tell you that you can pick yourself up by the bootstraps, to look at like that's utter nonsense. We live a completely contingent life. You could get in your car and drive off and get into an accident and your whole life be changed. And you, and you could drive the same way that day that you did the day before. You can't control it. And sometimes fate, sometimes these things that happen to us, start striking us more, more harshly than others. And again, the ultimate sense of contingency is our very life itself. Uh, this threat of death, the threat of annihilation, the threat of extinguishing our lives. When this threat of non-being comes to us, it creates these periods of existential anxiety. Until it differentiates between anxiety and fear. Fear is something that has an object. And so you can, you can confront it. You might fear a thing, and you can name that thing, and then you can say, what can we do to actually address that fear? Whereas anxiety doesn't have an object. Anxiety is just there. It seizes you. And it can be all-encompassing and bring you to your knees. And so what do, we, uh, what do we do in the face of all this? How do we deal with this? As a side note, uh, in terms of, before I move on from Tillich, oftentimes you've heard the phrase ground of being for Tillich's description of God. Again, it comes out of uh, this book, The Courage to Be. What he's talking about is when you're in these moments of existential threat, there has to be, there has to be something upon which you can stand for your being to actually be reaffirmed. That reaffirmation of your being has to come from somewhere, and that is the ground of being. That is God. And he ends the book saying, Courage to be is rooted in the God who appears when God has disappeared in the anxiety of doubt. That when you're in these moments, all of a sudden God appears, that's, that's the God of the Bible. The God that is the ground of our being. So what do we do when we, when we get in these situations? How do we deal with them? How do we face up this agony? And this is where we can turn to our reading today from Mark 14 to see what, see what the Bible has to say for us. And what does Jesus do? Jesus throws himself on the ground. He's in utter, ag- he's in utter agony. And what does he say? He says, not my will, Lord, but yours. 
He decides to turn things over to God. Put things in God's hands and have faith in that. But of course, that's a lot easier said than done. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think back, um, again, this is a story I told before, but it's relevant here. I think back to 2006 when I was working at Wapping Community Church in South Windsor, Connecticut. And at the end of my time at Wapping Community Church, the senior minister there, Mark Abernathy, uh, in my final sermon said, John, will you, will you come out of the closet in this final sermon of yours that you're preaching? And you know, the, ch- the church was torn apart and trying to debate over what they want to do about same-sex marriage. And so Mark wanted to put a personal face on it, a personal face of someone that the congregation loved. It's like, John, go for it. You're up. And talk about agony and existential angst. I certainly felt that. Uh, that threat of non-being, that threat of condemnation and guilt uh, that I couldn't control, that I couldn't do anything about, and that was overwhelming. And in the end, I didn't come out in that sermon. I didn't do it. I backed away from it. Last minute, Saturday night before. And this tore me up so much that then the next day I sent an email to the Committee on Ministry of the Metropolitan Boston Association withdrawing my name from the ordination process. If I didn't have the courage to stand up and preach the gospel when it needed to be preached, then why am I sort of going through this process? Now, then a few days later, I had uh, you know, one of these more profound spiritual experiences in my life when I, was watching, when I was walking on Prospect Street in New Haven and really did feel the presence of God in my life sort of reaffirming that actually, no, I, I should do uh, I should do this. I should go pursue ordination. I should carry on with this. And so I went down and I said, actually, just kidding. <laughs> Will you have me back? Uh, which I haven't regretted once since. But that was a period where, you know, I had the chance to step forward and I walked away. I was like Peter. I was like, oh yeah, I'm, gonna be, I'm firmly behind this. And all of a sudden push comes to shove and I'm like, okay, I'll see you later. But the thing about Peter that's remarkable is that while Peter might walk away from Jesus here in our text, Peter later on in his life does not. Peter ends up being martyred for his faith. You know, there's that great Kowadis, uh, you know story. You know, Peter's uh, facing the end of his life in the year 64, and this is right after the great fire of Rome, and Peter's, ready, Peter's walking out of the city of Rome, and he sees Jesus walking the other way, and he's like, Lord, where are you going? Um, and he's like, well, I'm going to Rome to be martyred. Where are you going? Peter's like, okay, well, he turns around and goes back to Rome, and ends up facing his end. The reality is for us to... Uh, have that courage to be, have that courage to stand in the midst of agony, have the courage to turn ourselves over to God and say, well, God, I need some direction here. You lead the way and I'll follow. It takes practice. It's not something you can just do on a whim. It's something that we have to practice over and over again. It's discipline that we learn, turning ourselves over to God such that we can actually do that with courage. You look at the story of Martin Luther King Jr., you know, MLK is someone who uh, stepped up when, the, when, when God called in 1955 and several years later was, again, beset by all these death threats and was able to carry on. He turned it, said, if this is the time I should die, this is the time I should die. And from there on out, he had the courage to sustain, to sustain himself from there on out despite what threats came through. Can we cultivate this? For Jesus, this was grounded in his faith. Jesus, if you, one of the things about this text, this text is chock-a-block full of references to the Old Testament. 
For Jesus, when he looked through the Old Testament, he saw a narrative of God's salvation that resonated with him, that gave him the strength and the faith to, to actually turn himself over, to turn his life over to God, saying, God, I trust that you have some sort of plan here, and I'm willing uh, to walk on it, to walk, to follow that path, to follow that plan. And that's really the challenge of us, challenge for us. In our own lives, not only in the narrative of the Bible, but in our own lives, where have we seen God directing us when we have turned ourselves over to God? Can we have faith in that and continue to reaffirm that? Can we believe in that narrative and work on believing that narrative so that when we're in those places of agony, in, the, in, the, in those places in the, in the own garden of Gethsemane, that we can have the strength to carry on because it's not easy. And this is, you know, this, I was thinking this morning, uh, you know, during our Christian education class, we were talking about Reinhold Niebuhr. And if there's one thing that can help us on the way, it's that this is great, the most famous prayer of Reinhold Niebuhr, the serenity prayer, which though people might say casually now and again, to actually use it as a discipline and keep coming back to it, I think is a useful, useful touchstone here. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. May that prayer and this story guide us through our Lenten journey and give us the strength to greet the world uh, as we celebrate resurrection joy in the next month.